Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Understanding the Costs of Care and Your Health Care Coverage. And today's program is part three of a five-part series on Life with Cancer, A Guide to Getting the Best Care. And this particular topic today is one that is very, I know, near and dear to all of your hearts. It's an important topic, and it's one that we really are going to, we have a multidisciplinary team to address it, so, um, so stay tuned. And we, this is also a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And really is because of that collaboration and your interest in the topic today that we have so many of you on the call today. So we have over 417 participants on the call. You come from all over the United States, from both um, rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities, and we also have international participants from Canada, India, Ireland, Taiwan, and United Kingdom, so it's a bit of a global call as well. Today's program is supported by a number of uh, companies, uh, AbbVie, Bristol-Myers Squibb, the Celgene Corporation, Ethicon, part of the Johnson & Johnson family of companies, Gilead, Takeda Oncology, a grant from Genentech, an educational grant from Pharmacyclics LLC, an AbbVie company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and ExoLexis, Inc. We really want to thank them for their support of this entire series and for their collaboration in making this possible. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Leonard Saltz. Dr. Saltz is Chief Gastrointestinal Oncology Service, Head Colorectal Oncology Section, Chair Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He's also a Professor of Medicine, Royal Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Saltz is going to lead off by addressing an overview of the medical and indirect costs of treatment, what to do when cancer treatment seems unaffordable, and talking with your healthcare team about your financial concerns. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Saltz. Hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to have a chance to talk with you today. I think it's really interesting and very, very commendable that we're having an entire session dedicated to this topic of cost. Years ago, it was absolutely taboo to consider a discussion of anything to do with cost or money in the context of helping patients with cancer. It still is a difficult topic, and it's important for all of you to understand that in, able, in, in order to enable yourselves to get the best possible care that you can, you have to get past any kind of resistance or discomfort with discussing these topics. Talking about finances is very personal, but talking about your health and talking about your body is very personal. Um, it's sometimes been said by some doctors that they, they were uncomfortable talking about costs with patients. But as I've pointed out to many of my colleagues, 
we talk to people about the most intimate aspects of their lives. We ask them without any hesitation about their bowel function, their bladder function, their sexual function. Um, to say that we're uncomfortable about any other aspect of care is just unreasonable. And it's important for patients to feel the same way in return because we as doctors, in order to help you, have to be able to understand what your problems are as an individual, what your needs are as an individual. Now, no one was ever taught before cancer developed how to be a cancer patient. So we know that nobody understands the importance of various aspects of this world that you're forced to enter. Good medical care involves good education of patients and their caregivers so that the people that need to understand what they're up against, what their options are, what their choices are, um, are educated so that they can make good individual selections and choices for themselves. Just as you need to understand what are your choices in terms of different therapy options, different chemotherapy, different radiation surgery options, different timings, different hospitals, different doctors, different uh, aspects of care. So you need to have a good understanding of what are you up against in terms of cost? What choices can you make to help you cope with those costs in a way that will minimize the stress on you as an individual and the stress on your family? And who can you speak with in order to get the information you need because it's really important to have good, reliable sources of information that will give you as broad a picture as possible of what your different uh, opportunities might be. Now, I think it's really important to understand that when we talk about costs, we're talking about a number of different aspects. You as the patient are of course going to be most focused on what are your immediate out-of-pocket costs, um, not uh, what you paid for your insurance. That's already happened. Assuming that you're in a situation where you have insurance, we'll talk about areas, if it, uh, options if you don't. Um, but what are your additional expenses? What are your co-pays? What what does a co-pay mean? What is co-insurance, and what does that mean? Um, and uh, to what uh, aspect are you going to be responsible for costs beyond what you have already paid? You need to have a way of understanding that. You also need to appreciate the concept of the indirect cost, not just the bill that you're going to get for a service or a drug or a procedure, but what it costs you to go to the doctor each day what it costs you in terms of time away from work, what it costs in terms of lost time from work for the caregivers that need to accompany you, what it costs in terms of uh, transportation, parking, um, bus fare, trains, whatever, whatever means. And all of that is something that you have to be thinking about and to the best of your ability planning for because these are, of course, all costs that you hoped you would never have and now have to figure out how best to manage. So I think the most important thing that I can tell you today, because, of course, each individual is going to have different concerns and different worries, is doctors today understand that healthcare is expensive and that the costs matter. And they are used to and expecting to now talk to people about their concerns. You need to be free to bring up those concerns. When a doctor prescribes a drug 
if there's going to be a significant out-of-pocket expense for you, you need to be able to ask, well, what alternatives are there? What other drugs might we use uh, in a different way that might be less expensive? There may be circumstances where there are choices between oral drugs versus intravenous drugs, and one may have a very different out-of-pocket expense to you versus uh, uh, versus the other, uh, and if they're equally acceptable ways of treating your, your cancer, uh, that could be the deciding factor. A term that we have been using more and more over the past several years is, uh, when, we, when we think about the cost, is financial toxicity. And when a doctor talks to you about toxicity of a treatment, they're talking to you about the side effects, about the negative aspects of that treatment. Financial toxicity is a toxicity like any other. It's a toxicity that we hope to make go away to the best of our ability. We hope to be able to make it manageable for you, and we have to be able to recognize it and figure out how to keep it from becoming a dominant factor in your life as you're going through your cancer treatment. So I hope these comments are helpful. Um, this is really more of kind of an introduction to understand uh, what your options are. Uh, we're going to have further discussion today from other experts on, on more specifics about that. But my message is be open with your doctors and your caregiver team about your concerns about finances just as you would be about any other side effect or problem you're having with your cancer care. With that, I wish you the very best of luck, and uh, I'll turn it back over to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Seltz. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful, um, really, way to set the stage for today's program and the importance of really addressing with your doctor these concerns right up front if you have them, because that's really, and you do have them, not if, but everyone has them. So definitely discuss it with your physician, um, with your oncologist. Our next uh, speaker is... Uh, Ms. Nina Pejorvez-Gorman, she's sta Senior Staff Attorney, Legal Health, New York Legal Assistance Group, or NILAG. And uh, Ms. Gorman is going to be, and she's an attorney, um, and she will be addressing um, access to health plans, Medicare and Medicaid coverage, the benefits and limitations of your health plans, insurance, Medicare and Medicaid coverage, tips on appealing your insurance Medicare claims and provided denials, so that's really important, appealing. Living wills, healthcare proxies, and advanced healthcare directives. And it's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Ms. Gorman. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and I'm so pleased to be a part of this workshop with Cancer Care through my work with New York Legal Assistance Group. I've actually run legal clinics with Memorial Sloan Kettering and also with Cancer Care, so I feel very at home amongst my co-panelists. Um, so I'm going to talk about healthcare coverage first. It's important to know that there are different types of insurance plans, and those include group policies from employment, union benefits, and privately purchased policies, as well as policies available through the current state or federal marketplace set up under the Affordable Care Act. I'll also talk about Medicaid and Medicare, um, and it's important to know that the insurance laws of your state might also have certain minimum requirements for benefits. So. Really, your rights could vary depending on where you live. Um, my advice is going to be general, but um, you know it's important to follow up with the, what the laws are of your state. Um, so ac access to coverage is really dependent on the type of insurance you have um, and that you're seeking. I'm going to start with the work-based policies. Under the Affordable Care Act, there are laws regarding health care that are important when looking at access to work-based coverage. Two older laws you 
probably have heard of HIPAA and ERISA also offer legal protections. Um, with HIPAA, something important to know is the Title II, protect, uh, Title II protection regarding medical privacy. When you go to your doctor you, and you sign in and they give you forms, multiple forms to sign, that is a result of HIPAA privacy rules. Um, HIPAA's Title I has to do with access to health insurance coverage for workers and their families when they start a new job or change jobs. Um, under HIPAA, work group plans may not establish rules of eligibility, may not charge greater premiums or deny enrollment based on an employee's health. So as a result, anyone who elects work coverage is charged the same, has equal access, cannot be denied coverage. As of now, the plans cannot refuse to cover pre-existing conditions. Um, we've all heard about pre-existing conditions when it comes to health insurance, so it, takes a, it makes sense to take a minute to understand what that means. The law generally defines a pre-existing condition as one for which medical advice, diagnosis, care, or treatment was recommended or received during the six-month period prior to an individual's enrollment date. It only allows exclusion of pre-existing conditions for which you were seen or treated in the past six months. Even before the Affordable Care Act, HIPAA offered protections regarding pre-existing conditions and set a maximum length of 12 months on pre-existing condition exclusion. So after 12 months, it will be covered. HIPAA also requires something called portability. If a person's changing insurance and the new plan has pre-existing condition exclusions, it cannot be applied if that person switched from one insurance plan to the new one without more than a 63-day gap in coverage. This is the concept of, the, of portability. Uh, we have not had to look at portability since the Affordable Care Act, but it does offer protection um, should the law regarding pre-existing conditions change, so it's important to know that exists. And just a quick reference to ERISA, it's, it has to do with uh, work-based plans as well, and there are many of the same protections under the Affordable Care Act regarding the insured's right to complete plan information and to appeals. So for someone without work coverage who does not qualify for Medicare or Medicaid, the health insurance marketplace operates in every state. It's a marketplace where you can go and compare different plan benefits, see if you're entitled maybe for to government subsidies to lower the cost of your plan, um, to determine if you may be eligible for free insurance under Medicaid. Um, you can also find this information at the federal site healthcare.gov. In the marketplace, a person cannot be denied insurance based on their health, and most insurers still can no longer refuse coverage of pre-existing conditions. Another important change is the requirement that insurance companies can no longer limit the amount they will pay for medical costs over the year or the person's lifetime, so there's no monetary caps on coverage. This means that insurance companies can no longer say once they've spent a certain amount of money that you're no longer covered. These insurance policies are still also there are also insurance policies also available through brokers. These plans are, are often more costly, but they may have better coverage. If you belong to an association or a group, like for me, the American Bar Association, you may be able to find a group plan at a less expensive rate. Um, so moving on to Medicare and Medicaid, these are both government-sponsored health insurance. Medicare is a federal program with rules that are the same in all 50 states. It's available to most people age 65 or older who are U.S. citizens or permanent residents. If you're under 65, you might be eligible for Medicare if you've been receiving Social Security disability benefits for a period of 24 months. Medicare is not available to others with some very limited exceptions. Medicare consists of a number of parts. There's Part A, which provides free hospital coverage, Part B, which is the medical insurance, um, where there's a monthly premium, and Part D is the prescription drug insurance plans provided through private insurance companies that have contracts with the government. There's also a Part C, which allows private health insurance companies such as HMOs to provide Medicare benefits. 
These Medicare private health plans are sometimes known as Medicare Advantage plans and are chosen in lieu of Parts B and D. Medicare recipients are entitled to the same essential health benefits. However, Medicare is not completely comprehensive in terms of costs. It generally doesn't cover the entire cost of medical treatment, often only up to 80%, leaving you with the remaining 20%. That can be very costly, especially with the cost of cancer treatment. Many people purchase an additional GAP policy to supplement their Medicare. These policies are exempt from the ACA requirements, and some do have pre-existing condition exclusions, so please make sure to read these plans and ask questions to understand all the benefits before choosing one. For people who are lower income, they may be dual eligible, meaning they have Medicare and Medicaid, and Medicaid is a supplemental policy. So Medicare rules are com- can be complicated, especially if you're working at age 65. So we advise to speak, you to speak to an expert. If you have questions, Medicare.gov is a great resource. And there's also a nonprofit that I often refer clients to called the Medicare Rights Center. And um, they have a great website, and you can also call them. But their website is MedicareRights.org. It's important to know that enrollment in both the marketplace plans and Medicare has Um, takes place during an enrollment period. And if you miss these deadlines, you might have to wait um, to the following year. There are some exceptions, such as when you might be losing other coverage. So that's why you're late to enroll. So make sure to speak to someone knowledgeable in this area. So briefly, we'll talk now about Medicaid. Medicaid is a federal and state partnership with with shared authority and financing. Certain eligibility rules are established state by state and may vary depending on where you live. So again, you know, this is based on the state in which you're a resident. Access is based on being low income, and so there are limitations um, on your eligibility based on your income and your assets. However, if you're disabled or elderly and you have a higher income, you can often become eligible for Medicaid through special programs. If you qualify, Medicaid recipients are also entitled to the same benchmark benefit package that meets the minimum essential health benefits that are available in the insurance exchanges. Um, Under the Affordable Care Act, Medicaid was expanded. New York, um, my my state has um, expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. Um, And and you can find out your eligibility for expanded Medicaid um, under, uh, in the marketplace, on the online marketplace, the health exchange. Uh, Medicaid is free and it's desirable for many older people with cancer because it offers, um, it could offer home, uh, free home care um, and also nursing uh, home coverage. So moving on to the benefits and limitations of your health plans, the most important advice I can give is to read your policy, uh, or at very least the summary description of your policy. Um, your insurance company representative can also be a good resource if you have questions. The first thing you want to know is whether your policy is an HMO, which, all, which will allow only in-network doctors or a plan that allows for out-of-network doctors, but often at a much reduced reimbursement rate. With an HMO, you generally have a copayment and sometimes a deductible, and that is the extent of your financial responsibility if your doctor is in-network. With other policies, your out-of-network doctor can bill you directly for any amount not paid by your insurance. If you have an HMO, make sure all your doctors are in network if you're having a surgery, meaning everyone involved potentially, including your anesthesiologist, et cetera. Make sure they're all in network. Policies can still limit certain coverages such as physical therapy visits or home nursing visits allowed per year. You must review the insurance policy and discuss um, with those who offer support, just like your medical team or your social worker, to make sure you'll be covered for all necessary treatment and care and all your doctors are planned participants. Also, 
be sure to check in with your doctor's office or insurance company to confirm that any procedure which requires preauthorization is approved. So now moving on to appeals, um, even with the protections we've gone over, claims are sometimes denied, unfortunately. Your insurance company is required to give you an explanation of benefits called an EOB for each claim reviewed. The EOB outlines the amount paid by your insurance, your required contribution, which can be your copay or percentage, and if not paying, the reasons why they're denying you. It's important to read every EOB to make sure your claim has been paid and if not, the reasons for the denial. So when a claim is denied, your first step should be to call the insurance company right away to discuss it. There might be many reasons why your claim is denied, and often the, the insurance company might just need more documentation to approve it. Um, it also could you know, potentially be an administrative error. So make track of every call you make um, or every letter you write, um, you know, write down the date, uh, who you spoke with, et cetera. So health plans and insurance companies have to tell you why they've decided to deny your claim with very specific information. You have a right to request a full copy of your file, um, including the notes made by the case handler uh, and any reports by the insurance company who reviewed your claim. If the matter cannot be resolved by speaking with the insurance company, you have the right to file an appeal directly to the insurance company. Often there is a first appeal that's submitted directly through your doctor's office, so talk to your medical team. In your written appeal, document the reasons why you disagree with the insurance company and always include medical records and a letter from your treating doctor. Your insurance company has to conduct a full and fair review of its decision and if urgent, must expedite this process. If they deny your appeal, then you will have the right to request an external review, which gives you the right to file an appeal on an, to an outside objective and independent panel, no matter where you live and what kind of insurance you have. That means that uh, an independent medical professional with no financial stake in your claim will make the decision. If the external reviewer overturns your insurer's denial, your insurer must give you the payments or services you requested in your claim. The important thing is to know time limits because if you don't follow the deadline, you might be time barred from, from pursuing an appeal. If you have a policy from your employer, the time limit is usually 180 days. For other plans or with Medicare and Medicaid, the deadline could be as short as 60 days. Uh, if the claim is denied, you will get notice about how to appeal and what the deadlines are, so read these notices. The good news is that about, uh, about half of all denied claims that are appealed are finally allowed coverage, and the percentage for external reviews is even higher. It's often very difficult to keep on top of insurance matters with so much else going on with your health, um, but understanding your rights and responsibilities as well as getting help from your medical team and groups like Cancer Care can help you navigate these insurance issues. Um, and another good resource is the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. Their website's naic.org, and they have a lot of information and contacts for consumers. And I'm going to end um, my presentation um, by talking about some advanced directives that could relate to your health care and making decisions about your health care. Um, these are documents, advanced directives are documents prepared in advance that address a person's right to decide what medical care they want to receive and who they want to communicate their wishes about their health care to their medical team if they become unable to do so themselves. Again, these are state-to-state -state laws, so you need to know the laws in the state in which you live. The healthcare proxy um, is, a, is a common form that allows you to name an agent to make your healthcare decisions for you if you become incapacitated or unable to communicate your wishes to your doctor. It's usually a simple form that uh, requires witnesses uh, for your signature. It's important that the healthcare proxy be signed while someone is able, the person signing it is able to understand what it means. 
um, important for any, any document. Um, although it's prepared when someone has capacity, it generally doesn't take effect until a person's unable to communicate their healthcare wishes to their doctor. So as long as you're able to you know, give informed consent and make your wishes known, your doctor will discuss them with you, even if you have a healthcare proxy. Once a doctor has determined that your, um, the patient you know, cannot communicate their medical wishes or incapacitated, the agent can consult with doctors, examine the records of the person who's incapacitated, and make important healthcare decisions. If a person doesn't have a healthcare proxy, many states have surrogate decision-making laws that determine who can make decisions for a patient. Um, that can include family and possibly even close friends. Um, but still, it's important to do a healthcare proxy, regardless of, of the law, um, because you want to you want to name the person who you trust to make these decisions for you, should you not be able to voice your decision. And it's important to know your agent is obligated to step into your shoes and advocate for your wishes as you would have wanted them, not decide what they think was best for you. So you really need to choose an agent who would, you know, follow your wishes. Um, and it's important to talk with your agent about what your wishes would be, you know, um, when, when you do a healthcare proxy. A living will is a specific statement of one's wishes with respect to potential end-of-life medical care decisions, and it can serve as a guideline to your healthcare agent and your healthcare providers. It's different from a healthcare proxy because it chooses a healthcare proxy could just choose someone to make your decisions for you, um, while a living will is very specific and sets forth a, what your specific wishes are. It generally only applies when a person is determined to be in an incurable or irreversible condition with no reasonable expectation of recovery. And uh, a person could write down in a living will certain things like whether they would want artificial respiration or CPR um, or invasive procedures that would prolong prolong life, but not give a better quality of life. And it's, again, a, a simple form to complete. So the last advanced directive I will mention is a power of attorney. It's not a really, it's not a healthcare advanced directive, but it can be useful in the healthcare setting. It's a form that allows you to name an agent to handle your personal affairs during your lifetime, and that could include banking or insurance and other financial and legal matters. The form generally needs to be notarized, um, and again, it's important to name someone you trust as your agent. Although a power of attorney doesn't cover healthcare issues, like I mentioned, it can be useful in healthcare planning. If someone needs to apply for Medicaid, they might need um, access to bank, their, your bank records to submit to Medicaid, um, which they might only be able to access if they're your power of attorney. Also, it might be required to set up a pooled trust, which is something you might need to do to Medicaid plan. Um, the power of attorney can also avoid the need for a guardian to be appointed should you lose capacity, which is a long and expensive court process. Um, so with a power of attorney, your agent can help pay bills, handle insurance matters and benefits, in addition to other legal and financial decisions. So I know I just went through a lot, but it's important to understand what these documents are and how they help both the patient and their family members and medical providers to make decisions that are not only in the best interest of the patient, um, but also follow their wishes. Um, and also can take a lot of burden off of caregivers um, so they feel like they know um, how to best help you know, their, their family member or friend. Um, and I just want to mention that there's also a National Cancer Legal Service Network, a group of attorneys like myself who offer free legal advice to people with cancer. And you can see um, what help might be available in your state on our website, NCLSN.org. Thank you very much. 
Well, thank you very much, um, Ms. Gorman. That was a very comprehensive presentation, very informative. I want to let all of our participants know two things. One is that all the um, resources that um, Ms. Gorman provided on her presentation will be available to you. At the end of the call, you'll be getting an evaluation form. Probably within a day or two days, we'll get the evaluation form. The evaluation form will also include, it's not just an evaluation, it includes all the resources that any speaker mentioned during the call, and then some additional ones as well. So I know you've been trying to write all this down, but you'll be getting all those resources. And number two is that these programs are uh, recorded, which means they're available either on telephone replay or as a podcast. So I know some of this you may want to listen to again, listen to with other family members. So please recognize that it, although you're hearing it now for the first time, you can only take away so much. And I just want to call it one other thing that Ms. Gorman mentioned is the appeal process. People who appeal tend to do better than those who don't. And I think there's a fairly high percentage of people when you appeal, I believe it's about 80% kind of get what they want. So to some extent, work with your healthcare team, work with social workers, you know, work with these pro bono law firms to appeal anything that you're concerned about. It's really important. Okay. So our next speaker, um, uh, moving right along, is uh, Mr. Ben um, Speaks Tanner and Jr., and he is an award determination and billing manager for Cancer Care's Copay Assistance Foundation. And uh, Mr. Um, Mr. Speaks Tanner is going to address what are co-payment assistance programs and how to access co-payment assistance programs. So now it's my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Mr. Uh, Speaks Tanner, Jr. Thank you and good afternoon. As Dr. Messner said, my topic today is what are co-payment assistance programs and how to access them. There are two types of copayment assistance programs. One type is, is, is administered directly through the pharmaceutical companies. Patients with private commercial insurances that are taking a prescription manufactured by the drug company might be eligible for that manufacturer's program. Some programs provide coupons where the most a patient may have to pay for the prescription would be a $25 copay. Others offer a copayment assistance program that will cover the entire copay through what they call a copay card. In order to be eligible for these programs, there is usually an income criteria and only patients with private or commercial insurances are, are eligible. You can go online to the drug company that manufactures your medications to see what assistance programs are available through them and the criteria that must be met for eligibility. The other type of program is re referred to as a copayment assistance foundation. Copayment assistance foundations are administered by an independent nonprofit organization and are not affiliated with the drug company. Their funds are disease specific, not drug specific. If eligible, the foundations will provide financial assistance toward the out-of-pocket costs associated with deductibles, co-pays, and co-insurance for medications used to treat the disease. In order to be eligible for this type of program, the patient must meet certain financial, medical, and insurance criteria. For example, to be eligible for Cancer Care's Copayment Assistance Foundation, the primary cancer diagnosis must match one of the funds we have open. The household income must be at or below 500% of the federal poverty level, 
and the patient must have insurance. Some of our funds are only offered to patients with federal insurance, such as Medicare. Patients must also be a U.S. citizen or a legal resident of the U.S. Along with Cancer Care, there are approximately nine other national copay foundations. Cancer Care is the only foundation focused solely on oncology and has funds for both solid tumors and hematological cancers. Our copayment specialists are also able to put patients in touch with a cancer care social worker for immediate access to our support services. The foundations are limited on the amount of funding that is available, so once you have been referred to a foundation, get in touch with them right away to start the application process as funds will open and close at various times throughout the year. The best way to find out about all of these assistance programs is to discuss your financial concerns with your healthcare team, who can then put you in touch with a financial counselor or a social worker. You can also get in touch with organizations such as Cancer Care, which are able to provide you with various financial resources. Another important website that keeps a current listing of assistance programs and other financial resources is needymeds.org. To review our foundation and for a listing of available funds, please visit our website at cancercarecopay.org. Thank you, and I will now turn it back to over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, um, Mr. Steve Tennant, Jr. That was wonderful. It's just a wonderful presentation about the Copay Foundation. It's a wonderful resource for people, and um, if we don't have it, we refer it to other places, so just remember that. That's a wonderful resource. And our next speaker is Ms. Marie Rodriguez. Ms. Rodriguez is an oncology social worker, and she's Director of Patient Assistance Programs at Cancer Care. Ms. Rodriguez is going to address support for the underinsured and uninsured, including Medicaid, other resources for financial help, and Cancer Care's free programs and services. It's really my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Rodriguez. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's a pleasure to be able to speak to you all today. Cancer is a very expensive illness, as Dr. Fultz mentioned earlier. For people without insurance, medical costs can be a serious obstacle to obtaining care. But even for those with insurance, most are unprepared for the out-of-pocket expense of their cancer treatment. Some of these costs can include doctor's fees, hospital charges, and medication costs, which may or may not be covered, even if you have health insurance. For example, many people Excuse me. Many people find their insurance provides only limited coverage for prescription drugs. Oftentimes, this is discovered when insurance is needed most, when there's a diagnosis or a medical issue that arises and you are in need of coverage. This is why, if you are insured, knowing your insurance plan is very important, as Ms. Gorman stated earlier. Understanding ahead of time which treatment and medical services your insurance covers and whether you are responsible for any out-of-pocket expenses is crucial. A good first step is to contact your insurance company using the telephone number found on the back of your insurance card. If your insurer denies a claim, there's a website, healthcare.gov, which has an excellent guide on how to dispute claims. Staying on top of medical bills is another important task. The consequences of medical debt are staggering and unfortunately all too common. Medical debt can be a major burden and a source of continuing stress for many living with cancer. It is very important not to avoid the medical bills as they come. 
If you find yourself getting behind on paying medical bills, there are resources that may be able to help. For example, the Patient Advocate Foundation has case managers that can provide guidance and support and can intervene on your behalf regarding medical debt. And you can call them um, or visit their website. Another resource of support when having these issues with your insurance is your hospital's financial department. They have experience in dealing with their insurance companies and can help you if you need to pay by helping you estimate what monthly amount you will be able to pay, locating some charitable programs that will help you, but most importantly, as soon as you start experiencing financial issues related to your diagnosis, is that you discuss this with your medical team to ensure that a lapse in treatment does not occur as a result. They can also help you navigate these issues and refer you to the hospital social worker or financial navigator at your hospital. If you are uninsured, it is important to check if you qualify for Medicaid. Every state administers their own health insurance program that provides free or low-cost coverage by visiting healthcare.gov. You can see what the requirements are in your state. Then there is Medicare. As you heard earlier, if you are 65 or over or have been deemed disabled by the Social Security Administration for two years, you may be eligible for Medicare. You can find out more by visiting their website at medicare.gov. Likewise, if you already have Medicare but are experiencing some issues and need assistance, there's a national helpline run by the Medicare Rights Center that assists people to not only understand their coverage better, but to see what other programs through Medicare they can apply for to save money on their out-of-pocket health costs, and they can be reached at 1-800-333-4114. There are a lot of related non-medical costs which can include the cost of transportation to and from treatment, over-the-counter medications, home care, and medical devices or supplies, which can add up. These costs usually are not covered by health insurance and must be paid out of pocket. There are also daily living expenses, which may be affected, which can include the cost of food, childcare, housing, utilities, and other daily expenses, which may suddenly become difficult to pay if a person with cancer or a caregiver needs to stop working. Please know that you are encountering financial hardships, that there are organizations that can help you. Some great resources to find local organizations that help based on your location and or type of cancer can be found in the Patient Advocate Foundation. So the Patient Advocate Foundation has a resource guide which provides a searchable database by state and diagnosis. Then there's the American Cancer Society, who also has a wonderful searchable database which you can look up by zip code and category needed. There is the Cancer Financial Assistance Coalition, known better as CFAC, which Cancer Care is a member of, along with 13 other organizations. It is a website that provides a searchable database which is disease-specific and zip code-driven. You can find this at cancerfac.org. If you are in need of medication assistance, as Mr. Speaks Tanner mentioned earlier, you can call or visit Needy Meds. They offer a comprehensive list of prescription assistance programs, as well as provide a searchable zip code-driven database to find free or low-cost or sliding-scale medical clinics, as well as provide a link to state-sponsored programs. I will briefly review cancer care and its programs and services. Cancer Care provides free individual group support to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer Care's cancer-focused emotional support is available in English and Spanish and centers on the emotional and practical challenges that arise from cancer. 
Oncology social workers provide short-term strength-based emotional support and may also assist in locating practical assistance, including community resources. They are a great resource to call on if you are experiencing any of the financial hardships we discussed today. Cancer care oncology social workers are available in person at our local offices located in New York City, New Jersey, and Long Island. Online or on the telephone, we offer services both in English and Spanish, as previously mentioned. Cancer care oncology social workers can provide cancer-focused support, help reduce feelings of anxiety and distress, help increase feelings of hope and empowerment, assist you in learning new ways of coping, help you improve communication with your medical team and loved ones, provide you with practical information about treatment, and provide you with resources in your community. We also have support groups in person offered at one of our local offices led by an oncology social worker. If people don't live in the area, a cancer care social worker will help you find an in-person support group in your community. Our telephone support groups connect people with others from across the country who share similar concerns and are regularly scheduled. Please note that for either the in-person or telephone support groups, you must call our Hopeline at 1-800-813-4673 to complete an assessment. We also have a, an offer of online comprehensive support group program, which is password-protected online support groups left by professional oncology social workers. Members must go through a registration process after which they can participate 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If anyone is interested, please visit our website at cancercare.org as that is the only way to register for our online support groups. Cancer Care also provides limited financial help for cancer-related costs when funding is available for areas such as transportation to and from treatment, home care, child care, and co-payment assistance as indicated by Mr. Speaks Tanner through our Co-Payment Assistance Foundation. We also have various community programs which can all be found and listed on our website for your convenience. In order to apply for any of our programs or to learn more and get support regarding whatever financial stressors you are enduring, please call our Hopeline at 1-800-813-4673 to speak to an oncology social worker or visit cancercare.org to get more informed on how you can help. Please be aware that any of the resources I mentioned will be, as Dr. Messner stated earlier, forwarded to you at the end of the call. Now, this concludes my portion, and I turn it over to Dr. Messner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Rodriguez. That was really wonderful. Just very comprehensive and enormously full of information for everybody. And so now we have time for questions, and I'm going to ask Crystal to bring all of our speakers on board and to actually invite all of you to ask questions, um, and we'll try to take as many of your questions as possible. Uh, Crystal? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And again, ladies and gentlemen, that is star one to ask a question. So we have a question from one of our online participants. Um, and this question is for um, Ms. Gorman. I'm on Medicare. How much can I expect it to cover my chemotherapy and radiation treatments? Copays are so expensive. How much does copay help typically cover? Is it 
is it a majority of all treatments or only some treatments? And I'm also going to ask um, Mr. Um, Speakstana to address this question as well. Actually, actually, Mr. Speakstana, do you want to start with that first in terms of the... Um, yeah, the if it's infusion... Yeah, I'm sorry. If it's a Part B plan and it's infusion, then um, or medical side of it, um, Medicare should be paying 20% of that cost. And oh, I'm sorry, Medicare will be paying 80%. The patient pays 20%. I'm sorry about that. If it's the Part D, um, they have a deductible they have to cover, and then um, a portion that's out of pocket, and then once it gets to the catastrophic stage, the patient pays a 5% copay amount. And then do they also qualify possibly for um, if, it's co if it's chemotherapy for copay foundation? Yeah, with, with us, they would be able to apply if we have a fund that's open for their disease state. And we would cover, you know, any of the copays for the chemotherapy drug itself. Um, and I'll just jump in, and this is Ms. This is Nina Gorman. I'll just jump in and say that, um, you know, based, I don't know what state you're in, in a state like um, New York, there's something called the Medicare Savings Program because for Medicare Part B, you have a premium, um, and it's around, I don't have the amount in front of me, uh, it was like $106 until recently, I think it's gone up, maybe like someone else would know, closer to like $120, $130 per month, could be higher based on your income. Um, but if you're low income, there is a program through the state, Medicare Savings Program in New York, that can take over the payment of your premium. Um, and then you might want to consider getting um, potentially, it could be more affordable to get some kind of um, gap insurance, supplemental insurance. And in those things you could shop around for, you know, by contacting um, the Medicare Savings or the Medicare Rights Organization that we talked about. Um, so those are just some thoughts I had. And anyone else want to add to that? Okay. And we certainly, you know, to encourage you if you're struggling with these issues. Or does someone else want to say something? Okay. So we do encourage you, of course, to actually. Um, contact Cancer Care. Our oncology social workers can help walk you through that as well, um, and um, and help you with with your concerns um, um, on this on this question. Um, and um, so we have another question from our online participants. Um, I was so this is, uh, so here. This one is for. Um, Mrs. Rodriguez, I believe. I was recently diagnosed with thyroid cancer. I don't have health insurance, but I don't qualify for Medicaid. The costs are already mounting. Can I get on health insurance without spending a fortune now that I am diagnosed? Or, oh, Ms. Gorman has got a pre-existing issue. Yes, yes. But Mrs. Pilmer, Ms. Rodriguez, okay. if you'd like to address it. Yes. So, if I heard the question correctly, the person was diagnosed already with thyroid cancer, so they have a pre-existing. Um, a lot of that right now, it all depends on what state you live in, and Ms. Gorman, please correct me um, if, if you can add to it. Um, it all depends on what state you live in, but definitely if you call Cancer Care, we will be able to 
see what is going on in your state and what is available from the marketplace and um, what is the criteria for your, your specific situation. Um, that's as specific as I will be able to get currently. Ms. Gorman, can, I, do you Yeah, I mean, anything? when the... Yeah, with you, I just with the reiterating that the Affordable Care Act on um, mm -hmm. the marketplace and health insurance companies can't refuse to cover you or charge you more because you have a pre-existing condition. I mean, you would have to see if a plan is exempt from um, ACA protection, yeah. like for example, Medicare gap insurance um, plans are not uh, are exempt from that particular protection. So they could potentially, um, you know make a decision based on pre-existing conditions or deny based on pre-existing conditions. So it really depends. You um, you really should, like, for all these questions, speak to your social worker, medical mm -hmm. team, or, uh, like, local community resources, because some people, even if they're over income for Medicaid, they might be able to do Medicaid planning with the help of a lawyer um, and, and, you know, setting things up like pool trusts or other sorts of mechanisms to become Medicaid eligible might be in your financial interest. Okay, thank you. Um, and we definitely certainly recommend you know speaking to your healthcare team about this as well. Um, it's a really important um, issue. Um, thank you. So this is a, a another question that um, actually. Um, so, uh, Ms. Gorman, are there people out there who can help with appealing insurance claim denials? Things are already so stressful; it's difficult to figure it all out. So appealing insurance denials, and could you talk a bit about the appeals process and the benefits of appealing? Yeah, so I think that um, just knowing that, the, first of all, know what your, your plan says about, um, you know, things that are covered and things aren't getting copy of your, of your plan. Um, any notices you receive about denied claims, look at carefully, look at dates, Look at the reasons. Like I said, um, you know, they have to tell you specifically why they're denying a claim and the explanation of benefits. Um, and then you usually have two, you know, two rounds of appeals, an internal appeal and an external appeal. Um, things that you could do to get help are, it depends on if your in, what your income is in terms of legal services. If you're considered low income, you might be able to find free legal services in your area. You can check out um, the legal service network of um, uh, the National Cancer Legal Service Network, what might be in your area, um, nclsn.org. Um, I think checking out the other website, um, naic.org, which is the Nas National Association of Insurance Commissioners, um, you can get connected with a person um, like in the Department of Finance in your, in your area that can maybe advocate for you. Um, so there are, you know, some people don't get representation for appeals. And if they, I mean, the biggest thing with um, appealing is knowing the deadlines um, and, you know, submitting as much evidence as possible, you know, lots of um, documentation. And that's, you know, usually the best advice. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, and the question that I'm going to start with Dr. Assault on this question. Um, Someone who's asking a question, um, and they're in the New York, they're in New York City actually. So that's a New York 
area, let me put it that way. You made sure that your doctor and the hospital are within your insurance network prior to surgery, but when the EBO comes in, you see there, are, there was an anesthesiologist who wasn't in network. What can you do? How do we control insurance network or of any support staff in the OR? I don't know if you can answer that, Dr. Saltz, or if we should, but I just thought I would start with you just because I know a lot of hospitals are very careful about that with, with people and they can appeal it, but... Yeah, boy, that's a complicated question, and it's a bit outside my area of expertise. Okay. I suspect maybe some of the other speakers may have a, a little better answer for you. Uh, I have to believe there are uh, recourses available because that, that certainly doesn't seem reasonable. Yes, and, I, I, and that is a very excellent point, that actually, because most of the time they work within your network, and if someone without your network is treating you, the hospital does have to help you with that because you didn't you 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 agree to the surgery within network people. But does anyone else want to comment on that? I would definitely encourage that that um, that person to visit the financial department of the hospital and just notify their their medical team that that occurred, and then see what what avenues are available for them to sort of get assistance with it. Yeah, and I think just like a lot of these things are out of your control. Like if someone, mm -hmm. when you're in surgery, is out of network, like that wasn't within your control. Um, mm -hmm. So if if you had done everything, you know, to per, to obtain in-network providers, um, so I think, uh, yeah, pursue an appeal for that. <laughs> and definitely a, this, pursue an appeal within the hospital, um, the financial department, the social work department, the nursing department. It doesn't sound, uh, it, because it's in a state that we're familiar with, in a city that we're familiar with, it definitely would um, cry out for an appeal and to uh, um, really mm -hmm. um, advocate. And I think what Ms. Gorman had said earlier is people who appeal and appeal effectively um, are quite um, often do succeed. Um, we can't guarantee it, but I think in this instance, we certainly have talked to enough people that have, done, have had this experience and have had to appeal. And, um, and I would definitely encourage you to actually have someone on your side in the institution when you're doing that appeal. So from the social work department, nursing, your physician who initially perhaps is your surgeon, to talk to that office about it to begin with so that you're very clear about that. And so then often they, they do have to kind of recognize that you had gone into that surgery recognizing that you would be that you wouldn't that you would be having all in network doctors. So that's really important. So thank you. That's an excellent question actually. So thank you for that question. Um, I'm sorry and, that you're uh, asking it because it doesn't sound hypothetical. Um, but uh, <laughs> there I, I have to believe that it sounds so uh, unfair and inappropriate that um, taking taking a, a reasonable approach with the hospital and saying, you know, look, this is not fair. Uh, this needs to be, you know, worked with or, or, or uh, somehow corrected. I, I think there has to be a way to sort that out. I actually think so, too. And, and actually, the caller, actually, frankly, you can actually, um, at the end of the call, if you wish, you can um, please contact Cancer Care. You can contact me directly um, and um, just to talk it through. Um, because that is something that um, is really of concern. I think I agree with Dr. Salt. It doesn't sound like this would be um, appropriate protocol um, at all. Um, and um, uh, so we have one last question. Um, 
so this is a uh, question uh, for um, Ms. Gorman, um, just a general question. I'm going on Medicare in June. I've had skin cancer removed, and I'm afraid of recurrence. What plan do I choose? The options are so confusing. What third-party plans are good for people with cancer? So if you could answer that just in a general way, Ms. Gorman, just in terms of the, the marketplace of choices and how one can work with people um, to help get the right, pick the best insurance for oneself. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, this is not an area that I am well-versed in choosing plans. I mean, Medi so Medicare in general has, the, has different parts. Um, part A is, you know, the hospital insurance if you're inpatient that, that has a deductible um, and outside of that has no out-of-pocket costs. Part B, you pay a monthly premium and that is like um, what I think of as in like, uh, you know, when you go to the doctor's office, things like that, that's like your insurance for that. Um, and that um, is usually when you think of the 80%, 20%, only 80% is covered. Um, and then we're talking about Part D, which is prescription plans, and then Part C can be private insurance. Um, in lieu, I think, of B and D. It is complicated. Um, so, so like I was saying, Part B and A, A usually happens automatically when you turn 65. Um, B, you have to pay into every month. Um, but you should get letters, usually through Social Security, about about Medicare um, and dates in Part A and B. And it's important to know, um, you know, to do things timely because the longer you wait to enroll in, in them, it could you could have um, like a waiting period to to enroll in them. But in terms of choosing like maybe gap plans or um, if a part of like a, a Part C plan, you really should reach out to. I think I usually think tell people to reach out to the Medicare um, Right Center, um, I, uh, MedicareRights.org. Yeah. Excellent. So that's an excellent suggestion. So people who really work with this all the time. Um, so I actually want to thank all of our speakers. You've been really phenomenal. This has been an amazing call. It's a call that could go on all afternoon, but we said it would be an hour, and here we are. So um, I want to thank you all. You definitely will be all asked back again. So um, thank you all the speakers. I want to thank all of you who have asked such really important questions that helped us to really um, help you with the struggle of getting answers to those questions. And I want to thank all of you who have been listening. Now, I do uh, want to uh, remind all of you that, of course, um, you, many of you still have questions in queue. We probably could stay on the call for at least another hour or two. Um, so for those of you who still have questions, I suggest that you go back to your treating healthcare team, which includes everybody on that team, and that you also, um, in addition to that, that we're going to send you all those resources that you can utilize, and, and do take advantage of them, and of course take advantage of the cancer care. Most importantly, I hope at the end of this call, none of you feel alone in your struggle to address any question or concern you may have. You now are part of um, the uh, neighborhood of cancer care. They're here to help you, and you can simply contact us, um, and our staff will do our very best to help you. And you've also learned about our Copay Foundation as well. These are wonderful resources for you. And, um, and, and, there, and you will be getting in your evaluation many, many other resources that you can call. And in this instance, more is not necessarily a bad thing. Contacting many people is, uh, is a good thing sometimes until you get the help that you need. Um, so I want to thank you all for your participation. This was, of course, part three. So there is a part four. So for caregivers, so the next call is going to be on care coordination for your loved one living with cancer and other health problems. 
on June 17th, um, same time. So I look forward to all of you participating, and um, thank you all for your being on the call today. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.